you hear these horror stories about people who would buy a booth just to walk the show the first day and see what was there. And they would go back to their hotel room and they'd have seamstresses in the hotel room and they Locking would knock off. off designs and go be there the next day underselling you. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today we sit down with Jessica Nordhaus, founder of Horny Toad Activewear, Greater Burlington Women's Forum, and one of the community leaders behind Change the Story. Welcome, this is Sam Roach-Gerber and David Bradbury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Jessica. Hey, Sam. How are you? I'm doing great. Good afternoon, great. Thanks. Jessica. Thanks for coming in. Oh, you bet. It's my pleasure. And also, thanks for not coming in when you had the flu or something mm, the other day. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Right. Doesn't thank transmit you, you. over a podcast, but you all were definitely in jeopardy. So. Yeah, and we are the talent here, so it's really important <laughs> that we stay healthy. <laughs> the talent, I love it. Tried to say that without laughing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> plus, there's like 196 other people that work in our facility, so... Right. We don't want to be patient zero or no. one or whatever the right and typhoid I, Mary kind of thing. Yeah, no. Not and I don't want to be the vector, so I'm Ooh, glad. Great word, vector. Yeah. Let's get into it. Okay. All right. So, Jessica, tell us about Toad & Co., formerly Horny Toad Activewear. Mm-hmm. I, I, you started this thing, and I found this out, like, pretty recently, and I was like, wait, what? It kind of blew my mind. So tell me a little bit about kind of what it is and, and how it all began. Yeah, well, Toad & Co. is um, a, a clothing company that was, um, a, as you said, it was originated as Horny Toad Activewear. Um, I was fresh out of college and on a uh, Western road trip um, with my college boyfriend, and we landed in Telluride, Colorado, and decided to spend the winter there and do some skiing. And once you spend a winter there, then sometimes you spend a summer there. And then once you spend a summer there, you're hooked. That's really the reason people stay. So um, in the meantime, I had – it was it was a completely accidental start startup. Love um, an accidental entrepreneur. Yes. Yes, it was. I, was, I didn't set out to be in business. Uh, I didn't study design. I didn't – know a whole lot about fashion, and it was a terrible decade for fashion anyway. the 90s, yeah? <laughs> well, really just starting the 90s, so Oof. 80s, even worse. Um, but what I did do, my, my mother and my aunts had taught me to sew when I was young, and I my first summer, the summer after my first year in college, I lived with an aunt and worked for her. She was a seamstress. And I had a little side gig at the local fabric store, where I could, I got a really steep discount on remnants, like really steep. I mean, a dollar a yard, we're talking some good stuff. Awesome. So I started collecting fabric that I had no purpose for, which included a scrap of hot neon cranberry polar fleece. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And this was the decade of polar fleece because Malton And hot Mills neon. And hot neon cranberry was a little like step to the right I mean that was pretty innovative to do a hot neon cranberry color um but I made a pullover and um I gave it to my mother which still cracks me up because I can't think now or then why she would ever wear a hot neon cranberry fleece pullover um so I'm sure she thanked me and tucked it away in her closet and then when 
this boyfriend and I were on our big loop around the West. We took a swing through New Mexico, where I'm from, and we were going to do a bunch of, be doing mountain biking in Idaho and, you know, in the Rockies in the fall. And I thought, perfect, I'll take the cran- the neon cranberry fleece pullover. I'll be warm. The hunters hopefully won't shoot me and we'll be good. So we did our loop. We spent um, a good six weeks on the road. And when we, and we had left a little uh, note on the bulletin board in Telluride, because this is how this worked at that time. You, easy to get a job, really hard to find housing. It's a box canyon. There were 1,200 people who lived there at the time. So we applied um, with the mountain company so we could get our ski pass. And that was easy. Priority one. Priority one. And we left a note on the bulletin board, and we went off on our trip. This was, there were no cell phones. There was no email. <laughs> this was like the great dinosaurs West. were roaming the earth, practically. Hot um, pink, hot cranberry. Hot, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. on a really heavy mountain bike. And uh, we left, I think we left my parents' home phone number as our contact information. And by the time we got back around to Colorado, I was staying with a cousin in Vail, and he was saying, well, you can always come. Stay. You know, you can couch surf with me and You're ski like, at Vail. Don't say it if you don't and, mean it. Exactly, but also it's saying, oh, there's an interstate that runs through Vail, and tell you it's kind of quieter. And so we were feeling a little demoralized, and I called my mother to check in, and she said, well, someone named Lyndon Ludford called you, and he has a place for you to live. <laughs> so off we went. <laughs> no, no, the two of us moved in in a little tiny old mining town called Ofer, Colorado, which is about 10 10 miles and another 1,000 feet higher than, than Telluride, um, 10 miles away in this old mining shack. And um, we set up shop there. It, it was, you know, there were 64 people who lived in that town. Um, we lived with Lyndon and his two very large and sometimes mean dogs, one of whom was pregnant. So there were eight puppies before a few before the winter were, had passed. Were they mean puppies? Did no, mean they dogs were nice. make mean puppies? They were nice puppies. Good. But the mother wasn't very nice, so we had to Tip we had to make sure they found nice homes. Um, but that was a lot of creatures living in this tiny mining shack, and the road would close periodically because of avalanches, so we couldn't get in or out. So we were always had all our gear in our car to make the trek in and out. Um, but I skipped, I think it was about that time that this, this, you know, this guy I was with who had about 1,000 ideas a day, so I discounted like 999 of them, said to me, you know, you could make things like that hot neon cranberry pullover that you've been wearing to keep from getting shot. Um, and you could undersell Patagonia, and, you know, it would be great. You could, and I because I was in discounting mode, I was like, oh, yeah, but I'd need a special sewing machine. And you know, lo and behold, a trip to Albuquerque and a walk through Costco later, he said, is this the kind of sewing machine you need? Costco, <laughs> I was yes. Like, okay, so Costco launched my career. I had this little crappy <laughs> sewing machine called a serger, which trims and binds the edges of fabric. Um, and I had my old clunky straight stitch machine, and we put $500 of fleece on his dad's credit card. 
Yeah, because my credit limit wasn't that high at that point. (laughs) (laughs) And I I started rolling. I started making, I started with headbands um, and hats and accessories and that kind of thing. Um, And before I knew it, you know, I had a lot of requests. It was all word of mouth. Um, Before I knew it, I had a 10-week waiting list. Wow. And I had no pictures of anything that I'd made. I didn't own anything myself because I hadn't had time to make it. Um, it was, I hadn't done any marketing. It was just crazy. I think it was the, the timing was right to have, you know, it was before every little ski town had their own fleece company. And um, the other thing that I was able to do is offer custom work. So people would come to me and they'd be like, hey, I need pants for snowboarding, but I really need knee and butt patches, you know, because they just wanted fleece pants for Western skiing or riding, but, you know, nobody was just making... Just a way to pass the time out there with 64 other souls. Exactly. Um, or I need a jacket with a little chest pocket with a little pocket for my stash or, you know... So like this I was sort of a way to get it. by through the winter. To get by through the, the winter. Same. Okay, great. And when, yeah. when did it sort of step up to... When did you say, oh, wow, this is really a business? Yeah, probably in, I'd say I started, I'd say the winter of 1991, I started. And then by 90, the winter of 92, I was doing, you know, more um, intensive custom work. And um, we also have uh, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival was a huge market for me in the summer. Mm-hmm. So I had kind of a two-season show where I could I could focus on the holidays, but then also um, anticipate a whole lot of orders coming in in the summertime as well and take orders and then ship after the fact. Um, so I would say 92, 93, I started shedding jobs. I had, at one point I had three jobs and this was the sideline. And then, you know, I slowly, slowly <laughs> gave up. fewer hustle now and again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's, yeah. that's cool. And did you always have um, the horny toad name or... How did that come about, like, and then, and then how did it evolve into something a bit more mainstream, I guess? Yes. So the Horny Toad name, it, it, it started as Horny Toad Activewear. Um, I <laughs> am a little naive. Horny Toads are actually a thing. They're a lizard. Yeah. Yeah. They're not a toad. They don't shoot blood out of their eyes. But they are a lizard, and they're pretty sweet, and they're kind of prehistoric looking and cool looking, but you can pick them up and they sit in your hand and they're a soft, gentle creature. Um, so I knew I wanted some kind of a critter name and I, quite frankly, was having a pitcher of beer with my father at the Last Chance Saloon in Albuquerque, New Mexico and he was throwing out Sounds like a great names spot. and I was throwing out names. Yeah, it was, it was a good spot. Um, we, we have some of our best creative thought at, at Foam Brewery right <laughs> down yeah. the waterfront. It's true. Yeah. So he suggested horny toad. I'd grown up, you know, playing with them, catching them, and uh, not torturing them. If you'd grown nice. up in Vermont, do you yeah. have a name it would have been, like Sap Bucket or? Yeah, maybe. Would have to be something puddle. like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Snow boots. The company never would have taken off. <laughs> Muck boots. Oh, wait, that's a name already. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, I, I knew it was going to be horny toad. That seemed to fit. And my dad designed my logo for me. He's an architect and an artist, and uh, it wasn't for a few years when I would I would call for a pickup for UPS, 
And I'd have to give them my phone number for my account, and then the operator would start laughing. And this is before SEO, so this is oh. just <laughs> verbal issues. <laughs> verbal issues. And one of the operators once said, um, what kind of activewear do you make anyway? <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> yeah. Please, please. <laughs> I was like, really? It's like warm and fuzzy? I mean, yeah, it was naive. But we had our, our probably one of our best T-shirts was lucky people get horny all the time. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went with that. It's a cool T-shirt. You still have yeah. any? You got to lean into yes. it. Do you? Yeah. I do. I do. So we, yeah, I, I think got I got men's, over. Men's large, maybe? <laughs> I'll look. Thank you. Um, yeah, I had to get over my naivete and my defense of the little lizard and realize that we could maybe work with this a little bit. And after I sold the company, uh, it was it was actually an internet issues that um, I think really prompted the rebranding. They um, it was interesting, you know. They knew people weren't able to shop at work anymore um, because oh, the name hit the filter. <laughs> the or name something. hit the filter. Thought it was some yep. illicit site. Yep, not and anticipated in 1991. No, not yeah. at all. And uh, the other thing that happened is I think that they did some focus groups and found that. Men in particular were would not drawn to a brand if they didn't already know the brand. You know, if they did, that they, they knew it and loved it, and they would shop. But um, if they didn't know it, they weren't drawn to Horny Tote, something mm. with horny in the title. So I, I love the fact you just did it, built an audience, sold some stuff, <laughs> got through, and you know, because sometimes actually, I'd be curious what your what your opinion is. Um, often pre-launch. You know, people really, they iterate and they grind and they mm-hmm. sweat the color choices of their fonts and their logos versus just getting something out into the wild and see if people need a hot neon cranberry colored whatever. <laughs> and For the record, I didn't sell anything in hot neon cranberry. That was just the proto-toad. Yeah. Proto-toad. Oh, I, my God. Yeah. Wow. I Is never that in a museum somewhere at that 64-person yeah. town? I still have it. Do you really? Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. I really wish. I, I feel like I need images to go along with this whole podcast. Like, we're going to need to mm. get a slideshow from you afterwards. Okay. Well, there is one. If you go to Toad & Co.'s website, mm-hmm. there is a picture. And you, like, search back in the About Us. Yeah. Yeah. There's a picture of me sitting at my little desk in, my, in, in the heyday of my solo entrepreneur, solo ownership days. Um, I was in a garage. I lived in a garage studio, so my living quarters were upstairs, but I had to walk outside and around to go down into the garage, which was my studio, which was good. It was a nice commute. You need the separation. Yep. Look at the the mountains, not worry about the dirty dishes in the sink. Um, And I had a friend who tricked out. We had a cutting table and sewing benches and a design table, but I'm sitting there with my little Mac, my... Apple SE 512K, wow. <laughs> I kid you not, and my fax machine. Wow. Sam doesn't yeah. know what any of that stuff is. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Are different generation, words. right? Yeah. I was also wearing polar fleece in 1992, but it was like a onesie mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I might have made it. <laughs> you might have, yeah. <laughs> um, Baby clothes. Yeah. Baby are, toads. Did you like having a, being an entrepreneur with your own business? Was it enjoyable? Was it always just like one stress to the next, the season by season thing? Like, Yeah, it was both. I was really, I loved learning what I needed to do. That part of it was really fun, and I really liked the challenge. 
And often when I felt like I'd figured something out, it became less interesting and a little more drudgery. And it was also, you know, after five years of running this, I was, I was eating, breathing, and literally dreaming about outdoor clothing and money. And I had, I remember waking up one night, I had dreamt about, I had a whole bunch of hat different hat parts laid out in front of me and I was trying to make them fit together and I couldn't get them to fit together. And that was like eight hours of sleep, oh. dreaming. About. So I woke up exhausted. <laughs> Those are the How many parts are in dreams. a hat? Only three, three? or four, okay. right? Yeah, but, the, you know. I mean, <laughs> uh, to the layperson, it may not seem like a complicated puzzle. But. Yeah, but no. in the dream, you have no control over that. Right. And oh. that's when I said, wow, this is really tiring. And people would say to me, you're living the life, you work for yourself, you can take vacation whenever you want. Right. And I'd say, there well, no right, except... from your own business, yeah. Yeah, except that who's going to pay for it and where's the money going to come, you know, like there's no production if I leave. So at my, when I was sort of at my busiest, I had about six women who were contracting. Um, they were contract sewers, but I was still doing all of the design, the cutting, the sales, the marketing... The graphic design, the I mean the whole works. Wow. Yeah. So I was tired. So besides that that dream, those mm-hmm. eight hours of hat parts, do you have sort of, you know, when you're really in the thick of it, do you have any like memories that stick with you of like that to this day you think back and you're like, oh my God, that was so hard. Like that was a moment where um yeah, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of really long days, especially in the season. So leading up to the holidays, um, where that was really hard. You know, there was a lot of fun too. Don't get me wrong. I was young. I was living in a gorgeous place in the outdoor business. I was in the outdoor business. So you know, there are a lot of people um, that the outdoor retailer business in particular is filled with fun freaks, right, who want to support their habit. So, and they're cool people. Um, I definitely knew that I would never, ever be in the rag trade were it not for that sector. Yeah. Um, Because it's pretty cutthroat. It's really cutthroat. I wouldn't say the outdoor sector is. Um, I thought people people were really pretty generous with me, especially considering how inexperienced I was. Um, I mean, I had to learn like what what does it what do what does it mean terms? I don't know what do you know. People ask what my terms are. I'm like I don't I don't know. And they'd say, Well, are you honesty? <laughs> yeah, like are you mean my values or the terminology? Like I couldn't quite you know. They'd be like, Well, are you net thirty? And I'd say, Yep. And then I go go find oh, somebody like, Google, couldn't Google, Google it. it. Oh my god, <laughs> it, it's too bad. Like Telluride has a really awesome accelerator now for business owners. Do right? they? Yeah. Mm. Not going to help you now. No, but. tell you I did not have an ATM when I moved there. Just saying. Wow, that's yeah. cool. So, do you have any involvement with the company today? Or I do. So, as part of the sale, um, which is a whole nother story in itself, like how do you sell a company without the internet? I mean, these are things that it's even hard for me to imagine, and I lived it. Much less Sam. Sam's looking at me like, "What?" I literally <laughs> told you to Google something, and yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, there was no Google. <laughs> um, I did take out a classified ad. Um, so as part of the the sale, you know, there was a, a cash component, and then they gave me some ownership. 
Um, and I agreed to stay on as a consultant and designer with them. And I, I did that for two years. So I was with the company in that role through 1997. Um, I was on their board for some time. And then I'm in contact with the owners. They've moved since. They tried to make a go of it in Telluride. It's just such a small market. The labor market in particular was a problem, but also fulfillment and shipping. Um, and then they moved to Chicago for some time. And now they're based in Santa Barbara. And they've done a great job of, you know, really sticking with a lot of ups and downs in the market. But we would hear stories. I mean, I, like one of those times where I thought, no way, we went to a trade show that was not specifically in the outdoor retailer market. And it was, you hear these horror stories about people who would buy a booth just to walk the show the first day and see what was there. And they would go back to their hotel room, and they'd have seamstresses in the hotel room, and Knocking they would knock off. knock off designs and go be there the next day underselling you. Are you uh, kidding? Me? I just thought that was like the royal wedding dress that they did that too. No, that's everything. It's like tube tops, and I mean, but definitely anything innovative. Like you have to be really like the the goal, um, the business plan was to saturate the market as much as you could, so you'd get the name recognition. And so that people would come back to your brand. Gotcha, right. Right, because you can't copyright clothing designs. You can't. No, and that drives the retailers keeping it and wanting it, right, right? because people walk in and recognize it. And Um, also I think that relationship that you build with your retailers, especially they were small and local, most of them. I mean, I got my first start with wholesale through um, a store called Active Endeavors that they had a, a store in Evanston and a store in Chicago. They later opened a couple in Iowa and one in Santa Fe. Um, and they took, a, they took a chance on me. They you know, bought my hats and agreed to take them in assorted dozens because I couldn't produce. And you know, I used my scraps to make the hats, which is the way I could keep my margins. And um, I... It, but they were all hand-finished because they were all reversible. Mm. So, you know, there was a lot of labor involved, and I just shipped them an, an assorted dozen in colors and, and sizes. That's um, really impactful. It was great. Yeah. And then we had – there was a big Chicago Telluride connection, so people would buy their hat at Active Endeavors, and then when they came skiing in Telluride, they would come find me, and I would build them, you know, something, cool. something bigger. So I had a lot of good customers that way. Yeah, I had years ago. I had a Moriarty ski hat built in Stowe that they were doing yeah. those those hats. Um, so, as a, as a woman business founder and owner, mm-hmm. like, what was it like? Was it was uh, it as tough, or was there easy like pros and cons, or did you did you even recognize that things might be more challenging? Um, I think I recognize in hindsight. You know, I definitely look back. I don't think I recognized it. At the outset, and some of this may have been the unintentionality that I brought to my work. Right, I was like, I'm not a business person. I'm not a business owner. And then all of a sudden, I was a business owner, and I had to start thinking like one. Um, and I had a mentor who helped me along the way with that. Um, and he he was he was very helpful. But what I am aware of later is I was resistant to his advice and everybody else's advice. I mean, the narrative at that point was like, you got to grow and you got to grow big and fast or, mm-hmm. you know, you'll expire. And I think that goes along with getting your, you know, saturating the market with your brand, which is really technically impossible with a one person shop with six contract sewers, right? And no internet. No like, internet. Yeah. yeah. 
Al Gore hadn't invented that yet. I mean, there was just no... It like, was in his lockbox still. It was, it was, yeah. Um, so when I look back on it, what I, what I was feeling like I wanted was a much more s- sort of slower, sustainable trajectory. But I didn't know how, I didn't even have those words for it. I was just, I knew I was resistant. At one point, he connected me with a potential angel investor. She was really interested in getting involved, and he was really interested in helping me, you know, make a go of this. And I ultimately walked away from a million-dollar offer because I could not conceive of having a million of someone else's dollars and what that responsibility would be like as a 23-year-old. what your dreams would have been then, right? Mm, Exactly. Um, so that piece of it, I think, was different. I don't know if I would have gotten different advice. I think when I look, you know, we, I think now we have a model for businesses that is really about local and sustainable and slow growth. Um, and I, there are a lot of women-owned businesses in that sector. I mean, I think ISIS, for example, you know, followed that trajectory more, you know. So I saw a lot of women after the fact who were able to achieve that, but I think it just – it wasn't a thing, and it was, you know, not quite, not quite a fit. Too much counter prevailing the the sort of ways of the world, right? I think so. I think there was one other. Time, I'll just tell you a quick story about a time when I, I did. I was very aware of gender when I was. Again, there were, you know, there were folks with means in Telluride for sure, um, and somebody invited me and my boyfriend to a dinner with Peter Yarrow from Peter Paul and Mary. And I think they, that was like a small dinner party. And I think they thought that maybe he might be interested in somehow investing or wouldn't it be great? I don't know. He sang children's songs with horny, wearing horny toad actor. I don't know. the magic dragon. There you go. Um, so I was seated next to him at the table and he asked what I did. And I told him and he kept saying, oh, isn't that quaint? Oh, isn't that sweet? How charming. Oh, you have your... Everyone, Jessica has a charming sewing business. Isn't that quaint? And I sat there trying to be polite, and I kept saying, well, it's a, not quaint, really. That it's word a, What an ass. Me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the only thing, I don't think this would have come out of his mouth, and I'm sorry, Peter Yarrow, putting this out there. But He's a regular listener. I, so. I think he must be. I left with just steam coming out of my ears. And on the drive down the mountain, I was ranting and raving to my boyfriend. He was like, Jessica, this is coming from a guy who made a million dollars singing about magic dragons. Like, really? Yeah. Can you get too worked up about quaint? Like, maybe it's a compliment. I was like, okay. But I'm still mad. I can picture your napkin just in a thousand knots. Yeah. 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 Wow. Can I ask you, um, you, you uh, grew up in Mexico, you said. I did. Um, what are you doing here in Vermont? And, and <laughs> what do you love about it? Or why do you stay? Is it, is it some sort of work release condition that you remain here? Or just why are you here? Some Februarys, it feels like that. Um, I, so we moved back to New Mexico from Colorado. I met my husband in Colorado. And um, we went back to New Mexico where he could go to school. So I was working remotely, even though, I don't know, what did we call them back then? It wasn't. It was like lone eagles. That's what remote workers were called for a while. Oh, God, yeah. There, what a, there are people who had like, as long as I have my fax machine and my and a landline, I can work from and, and anywhere. Talons, yeah, I can be right? a stockbroker from anywhere. Yeah, called them lone I, eagles. I don't know. I don't hate that term. I, it's we could bring it back. It's pretty Sam. badass. Yeah. Dave hates it. I can see it on his face. 
Yeah, it's it, it actually just makes me realize how how long I've been around that they've actually <laughs> rebranded remote working, right? Right. So right. right. Um, so I was not a lone eagle, but I was I was working from Albuquerque, and um, for so we were there for ten years and had three kids, and um, I had a whole different career, which was great. I taught middle and high school English, which I loved, um, and then. But my husband grew up across the lake. He was born in Elizabethtown. And uh, so we'd spent a lot of time here with his family and had always had our eye on Burlington as a great place to raise kids. So he did 10 years with my family. And now I've done 14 with his. But no one's counting. <laughs> oh, and no. Don't leave. No. Okay. I, no, but I do love okay. Vermont. And I think there are some... I love the Champlain Valley. Like, I really, as a Westerner, I need to be able to see... See, must I freak you out. Seeing all this water, the vistas. Green, right? I love the water. No, I love that part, and I love the mountains. So it's been, an, and I love the scale of Vermont. Like just, you know, the the, the access that we have. Some of us have, you know, yeah. if we can can manage that. So, yeah. I mentioned earlier that I, I didn't even know that um, you were an entrepreneur yourself because we met through Change the Story, mm-hmm. which is one of my very favorite um, initiatives here in Vermont. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why it's important? Sure thing. Uh, Change the Story is an initiative to advance women's economic security in the state. And it is a partnership of three organizations who've been serving women for a long time here, the Vermont Commission on Women, Vermont Works for Women, and then the Vermont Women's Fund, who's our major funder. Um, About four years ago, those three partners came together to see if together they couldn't fast track women's economic security. So we are not an organization. We are an initiative of those three partners guided by a steering committee. I freaking nailed that, by the way. You did. That was good, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Initiative. Nice. Um, And we've spent a couple years doing research, trying to collect local data, because we are often asked for that at the legislature. You know, Vermonters like their stuff local, including their data. Um, We put out four reports that focus on different elements. You know, some of it basic demographics, um, wage gap, women living in poverty. But we also looked at where women work because occupational segregation is still a thing and it really is impacts the wage gap in a big way. Women are still working in the same fields that we were working in 40 years ago in, in large part. And then we looked at women's business ownership um, because women own businesses in the same fields that we largely work in. Um, and we found a stunning revenue gap of uh, women who own businesses in Vermont bring in 19 cents of revenue to the male dollar, which is, you know, our, our wage gap is like 84 cents on the dollar. Revenue gap is 19 cents on the dollar, which says nothing about the profitability of those businesses, but more about the size, scale, um, access to funding and that kind of thing. So that was our third report. And then lastly, we looked at women in leadership, uh, public, private, and nonprofit leadership. Um, And we've used that as a baseline. We're in the process of uh, updating the data um, from those reports and also filling it out because we realize that there are some major gaps. We're such a small state that we can't accurately report on the, the wage gap, for example, for women of color in Vermont. 
because it's such a small sample size, um, or women living with disabilities, or even women living in rural areas, which is stunning because most of our state is rural. Um, our women's business ownership report, that data set did not include women who own farms. Hmm. So we are now actively looking for ways to and, you know, both make it a fuller picture, um, the picture that we can paint. We also, um, that data has gone into um, a lot of different advocates and groups use that data, in fact, work with the legislature. We're hoping that leg the decision makers use it to make good policy that incorporates a gender lens. Um, we bring together a group of employers called the Business Peer Exchange, um, a group that comes together to talk about different topics on gender equity in the workplace and share resources around that. Um, we just started up our fourth cohort in, uh, in April. So that's pretty exciting. Um, we're working to engage more men in the conversation. And uh, what else are we doing? A lot of presentations. Yeah. yeah, sharing the data. Sharing the data. Yeah, reporting out on that. Yeah, I've, I've used it a number of times just in... Um, you know, at my events at Female Founders, mm -hmm. you know, just in reference, chatting with people about stuff. And it's been, you don't realize how much you need it until you're, you start using it and how impactful it is and sort of proving your point or, or furthering your mission or, um, you know, it's, it's just been really awesome. And I, I find myself going, like, I, I need to look up this number and like find myself on your site all the time um, and trying to share it as much as we can too. Great. Well, check back in a couple of months, and there'll be new numbers. All right. We'll do. I mean, it's uh, sort of a, a known that if you use a number as you're making a case, you're, you're six times more likely to make a sale. So if you're trying to change public policy or to aspire more people to reach out and, and the fact that you have these, these data points to, to share, because they're, they're kind of shocking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, ugh. Yeah, um, that's true. It really is powerful, so and it needs to be told. Um, yeah, and we're balancing that with the also the understanding that you can't um, numbers don't and data don't tend to change people's deeply held beliefs. Mm -hmm. So our other efforts are around really around culture change and how do we start looking at our um, biases and you know the the norms that we've grown up with. Um, we have a couple sets of conversation cards that we've created to get people talking about gender norms and implicit biases in particular, and then also a, a deck that introduces the idea of sexual harassment to help people talk through what is sexual harassment and what isn't and what are their, their options to do that. So I think it's a multi-pronged approach. I know it is, um, and culture change is slow, but that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Well, definitely get us some decks. I've, we'll do that. Yeah, I've been having, I've had that on my list as something to, to reach out to you about. So, we'd love to have a few here at VSET. Perfect. So, um, I've seen you a couple times at the Female Founders yes. Series events that yes. that VSET and Hotel Vermont uh, put on. Um, why do you Why do you show up to those? I, I mean, is this like a job duty, or do you come for no. fun and? <laughs> Because Sam just gives such a great interview. She's amazing. She does, right? right? And there's good yeah. cheese there. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, the che good cheese goes a long way. 
It does. That's yeah. how you get them in the door, right? <laughs> exactly. Seriously I mean, dialed like, in, right? <laughs> community organizing used to be around food and diapers, but now it's like, I don't know, with oh. entrepreneurs, it's like food and what? I don't know. Wine? Yeah. Beer? Yeah. All the things. All the, All the things. Yeah. All the th- and good conversation. I think the Female Founders Series has been an awesome addition to our community. I love, so it's a little bit of both. Yes, it's a, it's, it's a professional part of my professional world. It is not an obligation. I really enjoy it. Uh, but I would be there uh, on my own, I think, even if I didn't do this work. And I, I love the energy of the crowd. The stories have been amazing. I love hearing how, you know, we all just kind of pull things together. And there's something it's about amazing. women who start things. I mean, the grassroots side of, of things it, and the, the bootstrapping it's really phenomenal to see what really successful women have done. And, I, and I'm sure men have done this too. But yeah. we don't hear those stories as often. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a modesty, I think, among women entrepreneurs in Vermont that is mind-blowing. And when I first started this series in 2016, I, I was like, you know, I, I hope I have enough to keep this thing rolling. And <laughs> Can I'm we like, sell up? Can now we get, like, fill the 90 seats, right? Are you kidding yeah. me? Like, it's just... There's, I'm constantly getting recommendations from people. Oh, you really have to have this person if you do this industry or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's no shortage at all, shortage at all. And it's just been a really cool kind of humbling experience to see what amazing things these women have been accomplishing. And um, yeah, we're we're thankful that people like you find it valuable. So yeah, absolutely. Keep coming back. Keep yeah, doing I mean, it. I think you, you you talked about you know sharing the stories and culture change and narrative. I mean, we're in this age of narrative and podcasts mm-hmm. and and right other media that we can get into people's homes or into their cars however they can consume it and hopefully educate inspire connect in, in new new and exciting ways and um, it's been really really awesome so yeah are we gonna do it again soon yeah yeah soon. duh right absolutely okay yeah, we're not giving up that cheese Right? No, it's good no. stuff. Yeah, we only plan events that would actually want to go to. That's like the rule that Dave and I have created for ourselves. Oh. It seems to be steering us in the right direction. It's a good role. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what can entrepreneurs and do-gooders like, like VSET and other organizations do to help change the story or other um, women-founded owned businesses? Do you have any, any, any ideas? Well, you can shop women-owned. Ooh. Right. You can support local um, local enterprise that are that are run by women. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I actually might be letting a little cat out of the bag here, but I'm interested in doing some signage and some creating some branding around that that folks could hang in their window or put on their website, so that you know you could be like a little change the story. Mm-hmm. This business is owned by nice a woman. Nice little reminder. If yep. only we had a window on Main Street hmm. in Middlebury, Main Ooh. Street in Burlington, right? We sure do. Yeah. Love so, that idea. So that's that's one thing that you can do. And I think, um, you know, really applying the gender. So there are a couple things. The, the funding opportunities, I think that's where the crux of this is for a lot of women in terms of startup. So some of it is about how we envision ourselves. And, you know, like I'm, I'm the accidental entrepreneur. I didn't see myself in business. There are a lot of women who are doing things out there in the world who don't see themselves as a business owner, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm just 
making these things and I make a little extra money or, oh, I just developed a new way to, you know, I don't know, the next big thing. I don't know. I, you know, <laughs> I'm, blank here. I, yeah. I'm at a loss, but I'm, I'm sure someone is out there. Um, no, it's like literally the taking notes thing. on, oh, she knows the next yeah. big yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. Um, so, so some of it is helping women to uh, understand or like raising awareness. And I think this is what Female Founders does too, right? And you mentioned the humility. Like I think just reframing, and I'm not even enough couch in the terms of helping women do, but like reframing that narrative around what we're doing that is of value and how that could be converted into um, an economic engine, either for you personally, for your family, your community, or the state writ large. Um, I also think that that we we know at a national level that two to three percent of venture capital is invested in. Uh, female-led startups. And that's just not okay. Like, it's not that there aren't women, as you have found out there doing cool things and coming up with the next new whatever, right? Yeah. right? Um, so so we gotta, we've got to shift that, and I think we, we have to um, really look at um, how, what, what are the questions that we're asking of Female entrepreneurs versus male entrepreneurs. I mean, if, if you're in a pitch competition, often um, women get asked preventative questions and men get asked promotional questions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, women are asked about how they're going to mitigate risk and men are asked about what sort of opportunities they see in the market. And that's, that's a completely implicit framing wow. of it. But because the world has been so male... That's and our, you know, we all grow up with these messages about what women are good at. Women are good at saving money and being frugal. Men are good at investing money and taking chances. So, hmm. um, so those biases come into play, I think. And um, there's some interesting people doing work around that about how to make the competent, the audition blind, if you will. You know the story about the blind auditions yeah, for it, the symphony. It's amazing how much the language is such a big piece of it, and it's something that's so easy to change once you start thinking about it and you start being intentional behind it. And um, I think another thing, too, is just having more women investors, right? I mean, Absolutely. because women invest in women, and um, you know, we're certainly seeing more women investors in the state, which has been really exciting. Even you know, I've been with VSET a little over three years, and I've mm-hmm. seen a, a big sort of um, increase in, in women investors. So that's something that I'm excited about as well. Yeah, yeah. and they formed a, 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 a women investors group, and many of them met at one of the female founders events. So, I mean, I think a little bit of inspiration breeds mm-hmm. more of it and, mm-hmm. and action more than just um, yeah. inspiration. Dave, Would you ever I... start another company? Well, I have. <laughs> what? Yeah. What did I miss? I well, I own a consulting company yes. here in Vermont. Yeah. So I was thinking more stitching and stuff. Gear but. shift consulting. I think I'm done with the rag trade. Yeah. I don't know. I never Do you say sew never. For pleasure and joy. Rarely. Really. Yeah, my sewing machines are down in the basement. The Costco sewing machine did not work out. By the way, I had to take that back almost immediately. It was really crappy. 
But it was the kick in the ass you needed, though, right? Oh, yeah. It got me over the... It got got me $500 in debt, and then I had to pay off my boyfriend's dad's credit card. So, you know, I had to make at least... by making some more sales. Yeah. There you go. All right. So you do have your your, your ongoing business, too, as well as the the initiative with Change the Story. Initiative. Yeah. Yes, the initiative. Okay. Can we ask the magic wand? Yeah. Question? Absolutely. Go, you do it, because I got the last one. Thank you. Thank you for sharing the airtime, Sam. No problem. Um, it's hard for me. So if you could change one thing about Vermont, magic wand time, what would it be? Hmm. Um, well, I think... Ooh. I think I would uh, broaden our scope. I think if... I had a magic wand. Um, my dream would be that Vermont would look like the rest of the world and that we wouldn't be quite so enamored with our own ex- exceptionalism, that we could take some lessons uh, from elsewhere. But I think we got some stuff to work on here. I think, um, I think you, know, you and Schubert both had yeah, that. Yeah, Bill Schubert was similar. We've, I think we've, that's a great one. Um, yeah, exceptionalism is a, a real dangerous mindset. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think we're and we're such a white state. Like we gotta yeah. get on board with you know we really. Um, it's gonna be it's it's working to our detriment. I think absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Jessica, this was so much fun. Sam, thanks for inviting me. I'm totally going on the internet looking for like hot neon cranberry (laughs) stuff. Like there's got to be a headband out there or something. Maybe not yours, but. Well, you know, I was at the Penguin Plunge and watching my kid dive into the icy waters and a woman walked past me with a horny toad hat on that I had made, like my era horny toad. I was like, I probably sewed that hat. That's pretty She was gone before I could tackle her. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, well, good, good, good. good for you. And thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET. That's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Like, is he?